Uh, it's really good to be with you all in worship. Happy Sunday. My name's Abby Odio. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are moving along in our series. We've been in it through the book of Job. If you've been worshiping us, you know it has indeed been a bit of a journey. Uh, Job is a good man who experiences this series of really life-shattering events. And um, this suffering leads Job to lament, to cry out to God, to demand from God an answer for why he has had to endure such pain. In chapter 17, Job cries out to God, and he asks this really important and specific question. He says this, where then is my hope found? Where then is my hope? My hope, who can see it? But as time goes on, it's sort of this one-way conversation. Like at various points, uh, Job's friends show up and they try to answer that question, but their answers fall flat. Their answers are insufficient. And then we arrive at Job 38, where God finally speaks. And if you're anything like me, we're kind of been on this journey together. And now we get to hear from God. And it's about time. We all sort of lean in a bit because that question about hope, it's not just Job's question. It's a human question. It's our question. And what we encounter in God's response is what many claim to be some of the most beautiful poetry ever written. Even folks who aren't part of the church community, you know, they talk about this. They study this because it's, it's masterful art. If we read through scripture, we find that roughly a third of it is actually written in poetic language. And interestingly, a majority of the time that God speaks in the Old Testament, his form of language is poem. Now I name that because what we find here in God's response to Job is not an answer to all the specific questions Job has had along the way, but it does shed significant light on this question, our question of hope the invitation to it, the source of it, the direction of it, our calling as a community to embody it. And as we explore that invitation today, the fact that it is written in poetry is important to name because it's as though this is God attempting to bring into focus something that is so mysterious, but also so good that human language must be sort of pushed to its upper limits. This is why Shakespeare doesn't just explain love. He writes poetry that causes us to feel sort of the spectrum of human emotion associated with love. This is why uh, Maya Angelou didn't just encourage people to be strong in the face of oppression. She wrote the poem, Still I Rise, and people found themselves sort of swept up into this strength. See, when it comes to a foundational hope, God doesn't just express things in literal terms. Rather, he's compelled to paint for us a picture of hope And then invites us not just to believe cognitively in that hope with our minds, but rather for the entirety of our lives to be swept up into this vision. And that's where we're headed today. So as we hold this question of hope, we see in this profound piece of poetry, God invites Job to a greater witness of gratuitous and wild hope and secure and costly justice. God invites Job to a greater witness of gratuitous and wild love and secure and costly justice. That's where we're headed together today as we do that. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I just am mindful that um, a friend made me aware, even this morning, we all just are living different stories. We've all been on our own journeys, different circumstances, some of those full of celebrations, some of them heavy burdens. 
God, we ask that in the same way that you revealed yourself, you broke the silence to Job, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, that you would give us a word of hope for whatever situation we find ourselves in in this very moment, that we would be swept up into that vision and that um, you would shape us and form us as your church to be embodiments of that in the world. Change us, we pray. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. So here we are. We come to this moment. God finally breaks God's silence and God invites Job to a greater witness. If we remember back to chapter nine, Job is in the midst of his complaining against God and he voices that he'd like to meet God. And the metaphor that Job enlists in this is that of a courtroom setting where he can plead his case with God. And in this courtroom meeting, it's implied that Job would occupy the role of witness. He would be there to testify on his own behalf. Now, immediately when God speaks out of the storm, one of the very first questions he directs at Job is this, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Now, that question is so important because we know that by definition, right, a witness is one who is present. Usually when we talk about crime um, or an event that occurred, a witness is one who was there to, to see it firsthand. They can testify to it with authority. And as God speaks, he clarifies for Job and for us, you are a witness to something, to your own story, and that's real important, but it's also incomplete. You are not a witness to the very fabric, the very foundation of this world and how it functions. You were not there. You do not hold all the variables. Several years ago, I was at a good friend's birthday party. We did one of those um, painting and wine nights. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but basically what you do, you show up with your group and then someone sort of teaches you how to um, paint. You all paint the same picture. And on this particular night, we were painting Van Gogh's Starry, Starry Night. And we had a great time. And as we were sort of wrapping up, um, we're all standing there and we're sort of holding our paintings, you know, feeling pretty proud of them. And the teacher said something to the effect of, see, you all are Van Gogh and you didn't even know it. And her comment prompted me to kind of have another look at my painting. And I looked down and the thought immediately entered my mind. I don't know where Van Gogh is right now, but I don't think he would be like super pleased about this. Like, I think he maybe would be even a little embarrassed for all of us. Like here we are attempting to recreate a masterpiece by following this step-by-step -step equation. Literally, it's like one step up from a paint by number, maybe a half a step. And if you're a creator and, and you're listening, you know art, you know it's not an equation. There's, there's certainly a logic to it, but it's, not about, it's more about taking a shapeless form and using one's creative freedom to infuse passion and, and meaning and imagination into that to communicate a deeper truth. Van Gogh painted Starry, Starry Night at a very low and dark moment in his life. He was actually kind of imprisoned in an institution at that point. It's a story of struggle and darkness and confinement and of light breaking in those spaces. And yet a hundred years later, I sat around with a glass of very medium minus wine and a mere 45 minutes later had the audacity to claim, I am Van Gogh. I am not Van Gogh. See that? story was sort of top of mind as I plunged myself into the poetry that God speaks here to Job. Job approached this exchange with God, believing he had the full picture, believing he was Van Gogh, so to speak. And in the same way, I'm not Van Gogh because I threw some paint on a canvas 
Job cannot bear witness to the entirety of God's ways based on his limited experience and vision. He needs a greater witness. He needs a camera with a wider lens. And as long as Job keeps trying to fit all the logical pieces together based on you know, his suffering, his, his limited experience, he will not be able to make it fit. You might remember in Job 3, this is at a really hard moment in his story, we see evidence of kind of this attempt on Job's part to, to make it fit, but he can't find hope. This is what he says in regard to his own human life. May its evening stars stay dark. May it wait in vain for light. May it not see dawn's gleam. The theologian and philosopher Robert Altier talks about this bit of the sufferer's journey, writing that what we see here is a relentless drilling inward toward the unbearable core of Job's suffering. I read that quote and I felt like, man, I can so relate to that. Like those moments in my life where I've been stuck in a, in a pattern or a sort of despairing way of thinking about myself or perhaps about the world. And you, you keep drilling down and you're sure there's, you know, there's learnings along the way to be sure, but it's also exhausting. Hope is not found there. But notice how when God speaks to Job in our text for today, he invites Job to a greater witness. Not, this is really important, not ignoring the true pain and suffering he's experienced, but also not allowing it to, to be the final word, the full picture. Job witnessed the evening stars or wishes the evening stars would stay dark. God says the stars won't just come out, they'll sing. Job says we wait in vain for light. God says no, light is built into the core of the cosmos. Job says, dawn will not come. God says, it will come with rejoicing. This week, I listened to an interview, uh, one of the last interviews given uh, on a podcast uh, by the poet John O'Donohue before he passed away. And in this interview, he was asked right up front, uh, what is it that's kind of formed you? What's informed your story the most? And in response to that question, he talked about growing up in Western Ireland, specifically the physical landscape of that place. Now, I've never been to Ireland. My heritage, my family is from that part of the world, and I hope to go one day. But in case you haven't been there either, this is a photo of the coast of Western Ireland. It's, it's stunning. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And O'Donohue said he'd wake up every morning as a kid and he'd see this coastline. And he commented that the, the beauty of it would draw him into both the present moment and God's action right there in that very moment. Said another way, he'd walk outside each day and he'd be wrapped up in this greater witness. And I love the interview's follow-up question. She said, you know, that's great, but what if listeners don't live on the West Coast of Ireland? He said, well, every day we have the sunrise and the sunset. Start there. I immediately thought of this season. I lived in Los Angeles. I was lonely. I was just out of college. I was in a new city. I was struggling. To top it off, I was surrounded by concrete and traffic. I always say Seattle is God's country. LA is the land of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not actually in the Bible, so don't, don't quote me on that, but strong conviction in my heart. Um, but directly across from our little house in East Hollywood was this parking garage for uh, the Los Angeles Children's Hospital. And for a period of about eight months, every single night, I'd climb to the top of that parking garage and look west and watch the sunset. And I'm not being dramatic when I say it was a saving grace. 
and I probably wouldn't have put these words to it at the time, but I was drawn into a greater witness beyond the real and daily struggles that I was experiencing in that time. How might we respond to God's invitation to a greater witness this week in our own story? We've seen in Job how good it is to lament and to cry out, honest, to be honest with God, but we see in God's response how good it is also to stop drilling down, to look up. This week, I'd encourage you to find a way to bear greater witness, specifically in experiencing nature. Think about making this kind of your spiritual practice. Get outside and go for a walk. Get up early, watch the sunrise. I've checked the weather for us. Lots of rain in Seattle, which is a real shocker, I know. But Wednesday, they're saying partial sun. So go to a park on Wednesday. And if you can't walk, find a nice bench or or simply look out your window one night this week and find a star. Think about the reality that it's held there by something. It's amazing. Now it brings us to our second point, which is that as Job's witness is expanded, he sees specifics about the nature of God's hopeful activity in the world. Namely, Job is invited to a greater witness of God's gratuitous and wild love. You'll notice as we read through chapter eight, God engages the metaphor of water at several different points. And for the ancient Israelites, this metaphor would have stuck out. Their lives depended on rainfall. They lived in a dry and thirsty land. Rain was precious. One didn't waste water. Water was life. It was to be handled with utmost care. And starting in verse 25 of our text, God gets real specific about the places where God causes rain to fall. He says he brings rain to uninhabited lands and deserts. In verse 26. Then in verse 27, he talks about rain falling in the dry wasteland and the ground. There's an emphasis here on, on rain, on this life water, an abundance of it spilling over and filling cracks, just saturating absolutely everything. It's an inconceivable amount of water. Now to us, this sort of sounds a lot like uh, living in Seattle in February. It's no big deal. But to Israel living in their context, it would have been striking. And God intends for people to feel struck at the nature of his excess, his his abundance, his commitment to life that goes over and above our minimum human expectations. This is a God who is um, just deeply and even recklessly committed to the flourishing of this world that he so loves. The theologian Gustavo Gutierrez says that this gratuitous love of God is revealed in Job It's the hinge on which the world turns and the definitive seal set upon it. It's everything. This this abundance of love, like the rain, it's undiscerning. It It touches everyone. And in a profound move, God reveals this part of his nature to Job in a way that's deeply personal. I mentioned those four instances where God talks about physical spaces, the uninhabited land, the desert, the dry wasteland, and the ground. Now, if we were reading this through Hebrew eyes, we'd see there are nuances to each of those words. The first word is sort of the generic Hebrew word for earth. That second word, midbar in Hebrew, speaks to kind of what we think of as desert, like a a land that's uninhabitable for human life, where, where no person dwells. But the third and fourth words describe the wilderness in a very specific way. They share the same verbal root, and it speaks to devastation or ruin, Uh, literally of a city, but figuratively of a human life. We see this same word in Isaiah in the Psalms, and each time it references a place that had once been built up, given humanly meaningful form or order, 
but has, uh, had been established as something good and understood, but now through some terrific force has been thrown into a state of ruins and rendered desolate. See, this, this is how Job felt about his story. He said so in chapter 30 when he described his life as a, a city under attack, all its buildings crushed, he says. Ever been in that place? Ever known the deep disappointment of the whole thing sort of crumbling down, a, a relationship, a, a hope you, you know, imagined for your future or your family, maybe even a religious community or a church you were part of that you were wounded by? that you walked away thinking that wasn't what I thought. See, God is revealing something about his nature that is cosmic. It's this loving gratuity that holds the whole thing together, but it's also so personal for Job. It's also a rain that finds its way to you when you're looking around at the runes. And in that place, in my cosmos, God says there's hope. It's that place, the place of runes, God says that I will cause grass to grow life to spring up again. So this love is gratuitous. It's over the top, but we're brought into, um, as we're brought into God's expansive witness, we see it's not only that, it's also a wild love. This is really important. What do I, I mean by that? And why does it matter? I'm glad you asked. This aspect of God's love is um, also essential as Job begins to make sense of his experience. In Job chapter 39, uh, God turns his attention to the animals. We didn't actually get to this part in our text, but it's beautiful. He offers these descriptions of the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the war horse, the hawk, and the eagle. But as one scholar notes, these are perhaps the most unsentimental poetic treatments of animals in all of literature. They're depictions that are not at all romanticized. And the thing each of these animals has in common is that they're actually untamable. Of the wild ox, God says to Job, will, it give, uh, will you give it consent to serve you? Will you tie your rope to it? Will you trust it to plow your field? Now, the obvious answer here is, no, you wouldn't do that because the wild ox is precisely that. It's, it's wild. It's unpredictable. It's free to make choices about how it will use its immense power. See, this picture of creation also reveals something important about God's gratuitous love that is the hinge of the cosmos. God uses immense power to give and to give generously and abundantly. And this love is life renewing. It offers us identity and security, but this love is constantly at clash with other forces, namely a wild freedom, which is a requirement of love. God does not program creation to love him. He gives us freedom. I experienced this kind of free and wild love firsthand this week. I celebrated a birthday. I turned another year older. And as part of the celebration, my oldest son got up really early with my husband to uh, make breakfast and decorate our house. And so as a result, I woke up on my birthday to a surprise that included our living room floor completely covered in packing peanuts. I have no idea where they came from, but um, there was that. And then there was literally hundreds of stickers. I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds of stickers on our curtains in the that same living room. And I came out to this very proud and thrilled four-year-old who couldn't wait to show me my surprise. Here's the thing. I'm deeply grateful that my son loves me. I am less excited in certain moments about the lack of control I have over how that love looks and is expressed. Of course, this is a very benign picture of a truth, a dynamic which can have much deeper and even tragic consequences in our world. God does not program or control how we respond to his love. 
Rather, God uses his freedom to give us the opportunity to respond freely. There's a risk here. The Old Testament theologian um, Ellen Davis just has some deeply insightful words I want to share around this. She writes, what God shows Job is the highest form of causality operative in the universe. The generosity that brings another into free being. Yet it costs something truly to delight in the freedom of the beloved. As any parent knows, I would say any human being in relationship knows. The Bible as a whole gives us a fairly good idea of what it costs God to create and preserve a world of creatures who are beautiful and dangerous precisely in their unpredictability. See, sometimes the cost of wild freedom of the beloved is a curtain with hundreds of stickers. But sometimes that cost is much, much more serious. And and again, we see this in Job's story as well, because his suffering brings him into contact with those who suffer. In chapter 24, he says, the orphan is stolen from the breast. The infant of the poor is taken as collateral. The poor go around naked without clothes, carry bundles of grain while hungry. In other words, kids are taken from their parents to pay a debt. Imagine that. The poor cannot eat, but must work so that the powerful can feast. See, it's interesting. The love God gives, it's gratuitous and over the top, but there's a tension because it comes with a freedom that we as humanity do not always steward well, do not always steward in the direction of God's example and God's intent. And so the very gift of choice and wild freedom, it becomes the source of much chaos and evil in the world. Racism, an exhaustion of the earth's resources for profit, human trafficking, abuse, just small everyday manipulations that we do with our our spouse and our, our friends and our kids. Many of us have been watching and waiting and praying as tensions mount between, you know, Russia and Ukraine. It's all freedom asserted in the wrong way. So what do we make of that? How do we think about that in light of this picture of hope God is painting for us? Well, that brings us to the final truth revealed in God's response to Job. God invites Job to a greater witness of divine and wild love and secure and costly justice. Now that word justice, if you read through the book of Job, it's everywhere. This is Job's complaint and preoccupation against God. He believes his suffering to be unjust. He did nothing to deserve it. And that seems to be true. And he sticks with that position. He's an innocent sufferer. Again, as Job speaks, images of a courtroom come to mind. Job seems to think that justice is sort of this zero-sum game. What I mean by that is he thinks that if you do bad, you get punished. And if you do good, well, then you're rewarded. And to this notion, this understanding of justice, God again says, you need a greater witness. You need a bigger vision. See, if we zoom out on the arc of scripture, we come to see that justice absolutely matters to God. But unlike Job, the way God envisions justice is not so confined. It's not zero sum. It's not that the bad get what's coming to them and the good thrive. Job knows this. In this world of free love, the reality of innocent suffering exists. But what God reveals in his response to Job is a thrust, a powerful movement towards life and the overcoming of evil, towards flourishing for all humanity and creation. And it's this ultimate overcoming of evil that God calls justice. Of all the things God says in this beautiful poem, I'm most moved by these lines. Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, the dense clouds its wrap, when I imposed my limit for it, put a bar and doors and said, you may come this far, but no farther. Here your proud waves stop. 
See, in this part of the poem, as in most of the ancient Near East literature, the sea is actually a symbol for something very specific. It represents the chaotic and evil forces in the world, the unknown and evil forces in our systems and and even in our own souls. And here God concedes to the existence of such injustice. He says, yes, there are waves and swells. Job has been tossed about by a tsunami-sized wave for a bit. Some of you have been there. Some of you know what that's like. But notice that even as injustice is still being overcome, there is a God who, who has imposed a limit, who makes it clear he is in control, who says ultimately and definitively to the chaos, you can come this far, but you will come no farther. Gustavo Gutierrez says, God clarifies for Job, there's evil in the world, but the world is not evil. There are chaotic forces within the cosmos, but the cosmos is not chaos. See, as Job drills down and down into his own story, he's struggling to believe that God is just and there's anything beyond the chaos of his own life. But as God speaks and explodes Job's witness, he says, Job, you are secure in my justice, my commitment to the cosmos flourishing, much more secure in that than in the zero-sum game you and your friends are trying to play. See, that, that image of God holding back evil in the name of justice, it's also costly. It also leads us where all good stories and poems in scriptures lead, to the cross, to that moment Jesus hung there on the cross with two arms outstretched as if to say to all the forces of injustice, every level and expression of it, even those within us, you have come this far, but you will go no farther. (laughs) See, this is the moment in history where God's gratuitous love and costly justice are bound together. Karl Barth says that the, that moment on the cross was both a yes and a no, a, a no to injustice and a yes to grace, to that gratuitous love. And folks looked up, folks who were there, who, who watched Jesus on that cross, who, who saw him come to life three days later, they bore witness to this love and justice. And it reframed everything for them. They realized life is not a zero-sum game. Praise God, his ways are not an equation to be solved. Grace is not an equation. We are not bound by the smallness of the prosperity gospel. And out of that witness would be born a new, more hopeful way of living in the cosmos, a movement, a community. Folks who didn't just believe in the cross, they were swept up into it. I mentioned the story about my one night as a Van Gogh imposter. Um, That was a while back, but just a few weeks ago, I had another experience with Van Gogh. My folks were in town attending the virtual uh, Van Gogh exhibit down in Georgetown, and they invited me to take along, which was fun. And I had no idea what to expect, but if you've been to this, you know it's really quite unique. It's sort of this full immersion into the, the life and the work of Van Gogh. And at one point, we were in this room, probably as big as the sanctuary here, and you just sit. You find a chair, you sit on the floor, and and you watch with others as these images are projected on every wall of this huge space. Pictures of Van Gogh, pictures of his paintings, and at points, little bits of Van Gogh's journal are read aloud. You're not viewing Starry Starry Night. You're there. You're, You're a part of it. I read these words of God's response to Job, and I felt a similar pull into them. 
I hope this week as you go, as we go, as we see stars and as we catch glimpses of the sunrise on our commutes, as we walk along the waters of Green Lake, as we run through the rain on our way to class, whatever it might be, as we experience the cosmos, may we also be swept up in the scene, that story God is telling. May we as the church uh, realize that this isn't just about some kind of paint-by-number religion. Friends, there's no hope in that. But like that early church, may we increasingly become people who receive and embody the gratuitous love and the costly justice of God. May we lean more and more into that story with our lives, not pretending like Job's friends to know everything or have it all together, but rather to be like the rain in the way that we love. Gratuitous, reaching deep. We may not want for rain in this part of the world, but let me tell you what, this world is parched desert land when it comes to love. May we join God in his work of saying no to injustice. Saying, hey, you have come this far, but you will go no farther. Not here. May we continue to be like that early church swept up into a much greater witness. May we walk through the world seeing God the way I walked through that exhibit, experiencing Van Gogh. May we become witness bearers of God's hopeful, hopeful kingdom. Let's pray together. Loving God, as we read these words, we... um, We're awed, we're grateful. We praise you that you didn't stay silent, that you never stay silent, that that silence always comes to an end at some point, that you find us in the same way the rain finds the desert. God, I just think of that image of Jesus and Jesus not being content you, God, not being content to stay far off, but saying, no, I'm coming to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to earth and I'm going to enter every crack and crevice and make sure, make sure, make sure that people know the depth of my love. God, I pray that that would be something we experience communally and also just deeply personally this morning in our own story. Find us with that truth in, in places where we've stopped believing it, where we can't trust it. God, I pray that as we receive your gratuitous love, as we, we lean into that story, that we would become with you participants of this love and justice. That we would find our place in it, that we would, man, I just think about that early church, nothing held them back from it. They saw you everywhere. Filled the earth with your, your good news and the way that they loved and lived courageously. And God, may we be that kind of church. May we be those same people. May we cling ever so strongly to the the only hope we have, which is you, Jesus. Amen.